0: Okay, if you remember last week, we left off with the Apostle Paul appealing to the church at Corinth by attempting sort of a balancing act or a balancing act of sorts. He was trying to correct them, but at the same time, he had to try to get them to see that that he had only their best interests at heart to the extent that he was pleading with them to see him as their spiritual father and see themselves as his children in the Lord. Those of you who are parents, excuse me, know and understand how difficult it can be at times to correct your children and at the same time, make them see that you are doing so because you love them and you have their best interests at heart, right? That's a balancing act, isn't it? Many times a child will not see, I guess I hit home, (laughs) Many many times a child will not see or understand until perhaps later in life what it is that exactly you were doing for them and and loving in them. Now, Paul didn't have the benefit of passing time or waiting years for his spiritual children in Corinth to get what he was trying to do, right? And in addition to that, last week we also saw that Paul, we saw Paul laying out his qualifications, I called it his, his resume, laying out his qualifications to the Corinthians in verses 9 through 13, where he informs them as to how difficult it is to be an apostle. Then in verse 14, we see the father-child theme, paradigm, again, when Paul says to them, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Then, in the latter part of verse 15, if you look there, Paul justifies his position by reminding them that it was through his sharing of the gospel with them that he became their father in Christ Jesus. This is very common in the body of Christ even today. Most of us in this room have people In our lives right now, or there were people in our lives in the past, if we're older, who have been spiritual fathers and mothers to us in the faith. They may have led you to the Lord, or they may have been very instrumental in your growth in the Lord, your sanctification process. And we've come to know these people as our our guides, as our mentors, as people who disciple us whatever nomenclature you want to use, the bottom line is they were godly or they are godly counsel for us. They're necessary for the body of Christ to grow. And if you are a new believer, if you're young in the faith, and you don't have someone like this in your life yet, then I beg you to please pray for the Lord to send somebody Pray for the Lord to send you a spiritual mother or father uh, into your life to mentor you and disciple you in Christ. I guarantee you the Lord will answer that prayer. I promise you that. Because this luxury is very important to our growth in Christ, and it's a luxury. It's a beautiful thing. It works the other way, too, by the way. Perhaps you are an older person and you've been a Christian uh, for a very long time. P- perhaps people that you have discipled over the years are older now and they've moved on. If that's you, I would likewise encourage you to pray for the Lord to send you someone to, or someone who is new in the faith, okay, so that you can mentor them going forward or disciple them in their lives as young believers, I'm sure you still have much to give. No matter how old you are, you have much to give. Actually, you could make the argument, the older you are, the more you have to give. You could very easily make that argument. Okay, back to our text. So again, we see Paul try to strike this balance here in the first four chapters of this letter. He wants to establish his authority over the Corinthians without destroying the very thing that he has been arguing so strongly for, which is the servant, um, the servant nature of church leadership paradigm. Church leadership, including and especially his own. Now, how does Paul achieve this? Well, he works at this balance by changing, changing metaphors. If you look at the text, he changes metaphors. In verses 1 and 2, Uh, of this chapter, Paul uses the servant-steward metaphor, and then, as I just said, he switches to the father-children metaphor in verses 14 and 15. He actually calls them beloved children. He's, He's trying to convey this point to them, that they should at least have some loyalty and allegiance towards him, Because he was the one who shared the gospel with them in the first place. He was the one that planted their church. I mean, who doesn't, in their right mind, have an allegiance to the one who led them to the Lord? Most of us do. I know I do. But not these ingrates in Corinth. If you read the text carefully... They were a um, thankless bunch. They remind me of doing laundry. You wash it. You dry it. You iron it. You hang it. You fold it. You put it away. And then somebody takes it out of the drawer the next day and messes it all up. You got to do it all over again. It's a thankless job. Laundry. Anyway. (laughs) My (laughs) poor analogies. They were arrogant, uh, as we've seen already. They were causing divisions in the church. They had caused divisions in the church. They were suing each other, okay? They were being sexually immoral, and frankly, they were just being plain stupid, as evidenced by their actions. And despite all of that, if anyone had the clout to correct them, it was Paul. He had a lot of skin in the game. And they're giving him a hard time about it, okay? He had his work cut out for him. Most Bible scholars agree that it wasn't just a small number of troublemakers on the scene here in Corinth. It was just about the whole church. I didn't know that. Uh, As I was studying, I was surprised to see that, But but it was. They make a pretty good case for it. So what does Paul do? Well, as we've seen he he begins calling them his beloved children and he refers to himself as their father in in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, that's verses 14 and 15, chapter 4. And it is here in verse 16 that again we see the title of this two-part sermon. He says, I exhort you, therefore, to be imitators of me. The therefore in that verse, makes it seem like Paul is saying, look, uh, children typically want to be like their fathers, so be good children and be imitators of me, your spiritual father in the Lord, right? That's basically what he's trying to say here. And he's consistent with this metaphor. He follows it through. Uh, For example, Paul refers to Titus as his son in the Lord, okay, in Titus chapter 1, verse 4. He refers to Timothy as his faithful child in the Lord, and that's right here in verse 17 of our text. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, he again refers to Timothy as being, quote, like a child serving his father in the furtherance of, of the gospel, end quote. And then in Philemon, chapter or I'm sorry, verse 10, Paul also calls Onesimus his child in the Lord. Okay? So he's consistent. Paul's consistent with the father-child paradigm through all of his letters. That's all I want you to see. Now, if you would please look at verse 17 of our text, chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, right after Paul tells the Corinthians to be imitators of him. He says this, quote, for this reason, I have sent to you, Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. In other words, Paul is saying, I want you beloved children, Corinthian children, to be imitators of me, your father in the faith. And if you're not sure what that looks like. Don't fret. I'm going to send you Timothy to instruct you how to model this Christian life that I want you to imitate in me. So we have to ask ourselves, as we interrogate the text, we ask five W's in the H, who, what, when, where, why, and how. Why Timothy, Paul? Why'd you pick him? Well, because for starters, Timothy has worked very closely with Paul He knows what Paul teaches everywhere in every church. And I can give you seven scriptures I have here as proof texts of that. Okay? And by the way, because Timothy, this is what I would say to Paul. I mean, if I were Paul, what I would say to the Corinthians, if they say, why are you sending us this guy, Timothy? I'd say, well, because he co-founded your church with me. He was there with me. We gave birth to this church. So don't give me a hard time about sending him. He's got skin in the game, just like me. So I want you to see that Paul's not a, he's not a narcissist, okay? He, he's not saying I've arrived, everyone quickly, you know, imitate me. He's saying, imitate me because I imitate Christ. Look at my life for goodness sake. You know, stone, shipwrecked naked, left for dead, that Paul, you know? And remember Paul's, resume from last week, which most of the stuff I just said is on that resume, the Corinthians were saying, uh, you know, we really don't need this, Paul. We've arrived. We're strong. We're honorable. We're it. Paul says, no, you're a bunch of dopes. And he says, you haven't suffered enough for the faith to be boastful about anything. You haven't even come close to paying your dues. Paul says, my fellow laborers and me. Oh, I can assure you, folks, Paul and his fellow laborers with him paid dues, not only in the Christian life, but to plant this church. We are fools for the sake of Christ, he said. He said, we are weak, we are despised. We've been made a spectacle for everyone to see. You, my beloved children, are clueless, he says. Milano paraphrase," Which is why I'm writing this letter to you in the first place. And why I have to send Timothy to you because you just aren't getting it. Paul was very poorly treated for the gospel message just about everywhere he went. So it's not like he's not used to this. But they were an especially, the the Corinthians were an especially bad bunch, as we'll see, in weeks to come. Paul wants to bring people the good news of great joy. (laughs) That's what it is. And these guys are sucking the joy out of them, you know? And they're trying to kill him for it. And if anyone had arrived, okay, and could boast, it was Paul. So, Paul did indeed imitate Christ in his life and in his sufferings. And so, he's telling the Corinthians to imitate Christ in the same way, imitate him and imitate Christ in the same way. And in Romans 8, 29, I think this is interesting. Paul says that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's an incredible thought. Before the world was created, before God knit you together in your mother's womb, he predetermined that you would not only be saved, but that you would be conformed to the image of the second person of the eternal Godhead. But like the church at Corinth, many people who call themselves Christians today don't even give that a second thought. They don't even give it a second thought as to what it means to imitate Christ and be conformed to the image of Christ. We are so concerned in evangelical Christianity in America about being worldly and about being cosmopolitan and being chic. We are taught from today's pulpits that it's all about us our blessings, our success, our goals, our dreams. We've been, we've been conditioned to become wrapped up in this material, these material values and what God wants for us. This is what God I think God wants this for me. It's sickening. When I look at how Christians live today, and I compare it to what I saw in Christianity 25 years ago, I get really, really concerned. And in all honesty, I get depressed at times about it. I've seen a drastic change and decline within the body of Christ, and it scares me for my grandkids. Twenty-five years ago, nothing, and I mean nothing, got in the way of going to church. Of course, if you're sick, you know what I mean. You stay home. But people didn't miss church for stupid, frivolous reasons. And they certainly didn't make a habit of it or a pattern of it. And I think that's what bothers me so much today in this country about Christianity is people have made a pattern of not going to church and having fellowship in the flesh with other believers. I know a lot of people who just stay home, dial in on Zoom, and they think God's happy with that and that they don't need to make Christian friends to grow in Christian Bible studies, fellowship. Go to church in your pajamas. It's not the Christianity that Jesus died for. So, I I would call today's Christianity a corporate Christianity. Anyway, there's nothing that can replace an in-person corporate fellowship with other Christians. Anyhow, I'm on my soapbox. I was reading some church history this week, and I came across something that blew me away that I have never read before. Did you know that In the first hundred years or so of corporate Christian worship, if someone in a home group or in a local body of believers had come upon unfortunate circumstances that prevented them from being able to feed their families, we have a hard time grasping this here in America because even if you're unemployed, you could still eat whereas in other countries you can't, okay? In this situation where these people live, you couldn't. So what the Christians did when this happened, when there were families who didn't have enough food, these Christians, there would be three or four of them in the group, would fast for three or four days And they would take the food that they normally would have eaten, that they fasted from, and they would give it to the family who didn't have any food. I thought that was a beautiful thing. And I just wondered how many people would do that today. You know, so-and-so's unemployed. I know he's having a hard time. I think my family and I are going to fast this week, and we're going to give them the food that we have in our pantry that we were going to eat. I say that to say this. This is the kind of picture that should reflect us today in the church. When I say picture, I mean love for one another. We should have this kind of love for each other in our local bodies of believers. Does that make sense? And people in this church, and I'm not just saying this, They do love each other. I have no gripes about our body of beliefs. I really don't. When Amy and I were sick, people showing up with food, you know, couldn't ask for more love and more compassion. And, you know, we're we're not into patting ourselves on the back, but pat yourselves on the back because everybody here does love and does help others in this church when they are in need. And if you if you don't believe that, have a few weeks stay at the hospital and see how many people from this church come and visit you. Quite a bit. Anyway, this should remind us, if you were to look at Acts 4, if you want to turn there, you can, um, this sort of thing. And I'm going to tie this into Corinthians um, in Acts four thirty two through 35, I'm just going to read it because it's a perfect explanation of everything I just said and what I read about these people that fasted. Verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him or that anything that belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet And they would be distributed to each as any had need. That's the way we should want our church to be. And that's the way all churches should be. And James, our Lord's brother, um, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, I read that right after the Acts passage because I wanted to say this, that this sentiment, both Acts 4 and James, um, what is that? Two, Steve? Did I just read that? I can't remember. Anyway, I didn't put the chapter and the verse there. Um, We're not taught this from American pulpits largely today. Please don't think I'm ripping on every church in America. I'm just saying generally, if you you turn on the TV and you watch a decent preacher who's not a charlatan on TV, they still don't talk about community and unity and fellowship like this. They, They just don't. Yet, um, we are taught instead, as I said before, that God is only concerned, if you turn on the TV, with us as Christians being healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And we are taught that if we are suffering in any way, it's because we may have some hidden, unconfessed sin in our lives, or we're taught that we don't have enough faith to move God's hand on our behalf, or we are taught that we are not succeeding in every area of our lives because we might have generational curses plaguing us. How many of you have heard that one in media? Um, And I could go on and on, okay? Um, Here's the truth. Scripture teaches that you can't be a friend of the world and an imitator of Christ. It's like oil and water, and they don't mix. And if you are worldly, chances are you're going to care less about widows and orphans in their distress, as our Lord's brother James says. They won't even be on your radar. And for some of us in here today, I'm not pointing fingers, I'm just saying in every congregation... There's someone who knows they've been drinking milk too long. They've been on the bottle too long, and they need to move to meet more mature Christianity. And they refuse to do it because they've gotten comfortable with the milk, with the bottle. And so I say that to say, if, if that's you, if God convicts you um, that it's time to become more mature in your walk with him, then please pay attention to that and pray about that. Now, remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, previous chapter? Paul says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual. Imagine him saying, come, come, Imagine me coming in here and saying, Hey, guys, I couldn't address you as spiritual. Wish I could, but I can't but as worldly, is what Paul says, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready for it. You're still worldly. Well, how are they worldly, Paul? For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly, Paul says? I don't want to get off on a tangent, okay, here. I just want you to see that being an imitator of Paul and more importantly, being an imitator of Christ is in very stark contrast to what many people are today hearing as they call themselves Christians. Now, you may be thinking, well, how do I know if I am being an effective imitator of Christ? If you are about the business of imitating Christ, you will know it because you will get stoned. I'm not talking about Bob Dylan stoned. Talking about Paul stoned, okay? Um, Not drunkenness with alcohol or drugs. I'm talking about somebody's going to throw a stone at your head eventually if you're imitating Christ. It's a metaphor. If you're being imitators of Jesus, then you're going to have some of the same things on your resume that Paul had on his. One of which, obviously, is you're going to meet opposition. If you're sharing the gospel and you're being like Christ, you're going to meet opposition wherever you go. And like Timothy in verse 17 of our text this morning, I'm just here to remind you of what Paul's imitation of Christ, I'm sorry, Timothy is here to remind them of what Paul's imitation of Christ is going to look like. That's why he sent Timothy. And what exactly are Christ's ways anyway? Okay, how does conforming to his image play out in our everyday lives at home, at work, and at play? Let's just very quickly, to answer that, look at our Lord's ways. I'm just going to pick two chapters, and I'm going to blow through them real quick. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to read verses. Luke chapters 4, 5, and 6. Follow me on this. If you could turn there. This is what imitating Christ would look like if you really want to sit down and think about it and study it. And, and I'd like you to ask yourself, as I quickly go down this list, if any of this resembles you, and if it does, how does it resemble you in your life? Let's just start with chapter 4, verse 1, Okay? Remember, we're talking about imitating Christ being conformed to the image of Christ. So we want to look at what Christ is about. On well, 4.1, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's led by the Spirit. Are you led by the Holy Spirit? In verse 2, he's tempted by the devil, and he fasts during this testing, okay? Do you fast when you feel attacked by Satan? Verse 4, he knew the scriptures and he quoted them against the devil. Am I in the, did I give you the right passage? Because some people are looking at me like it might be the wrong passage. Okay, my imagination. Okay, 4-4, four, four, he knew the scriptures, he quoted them against the devil. Do you do that? He was in the power of the Spirit, which we're going to talk about momentarily. His words were gracious. If you want to be an imitator of Christ, folks, you're not slandering, you're not gossiping, you're not backbiting, you're not cussing, your words are gracious, seasoned with salt, and you only say the things that are beneficial for the people that are around you and they're about to hear you speak, Ephesians four twenty-nine and 30, okay? And then in 431, he, he taught and spoke with authority Do you know what you're talking about when you talk about the Bible and about the scriptures? When you share the gospel, the good news with someone, are you confident that you're sharing it correctly? If you are, then you're being Christ-like. In verse 35 of chapter 4, Jesus rebuked evil spirits. In, In verse 42, left the crowd to go to a deserted place to pray, to get away and to pray. Do you take a break from the rat race of this world, from the busyness of your schedule, and go and get alone somewhere where nobody's going to bother you? Do you turn the cell phone off and pray? And then in chapter 5, verse all the way down to 16, um, again, Luke says, Jesus withdrew to deserted places to pray, As a matter of fact, early Christians, folks, prayed religiously, no pun intended, three times a day. Um, They often would do as Peter did. They would go on the roofs of their homes, the roofs of their homes to pray. They would go and they would get away from the hustle and bustle of the world. And by the way, Muslims today still pray Five times a day. So think about that. Um, Chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Do you have a relationship with people that are unsaved and unchurched for the purpose of showing them Christ in you and for the hope that maybe the Lord will open a door for the word, like we talked about last week, and give you an opportunity to share the gospel with them? And then in 532, 532, he calls these sinners to repentance. In 6.12, he departed to a mountain to pray again. 23, commands us to rejoice when persecuted. Do you rejoice and thank the Lord when you're persecuted by the world for your Christianity? You should, because you're chalking up treasures in heaven, right? I mean, that's what Jesus said. Um, Verse 27 of chapter 6 commands us to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. Make a list of your enemies and those that you think hate you. And purpose in your heart to not only pray for them, but to do something good for them. Um, 628, next verse. Pray for those that mistreat you. 629. Commands us to turn the other cheek. 630 commands us to give to everyone who asks of us and not demand it back. Verse 31 commands us to do to others as we'd have them do to us. Verse 34 commands us to lend and not expect repayment. Verse 35 commands us to love our enemies, do good to them, expect nothing back from them again. Verse 36. Commands us to be merciful as our heavenly Father is merciful. Verse 37 commands us not to judge, not to condemn, but to forgive. Verse 38 commands us to give, to produce fruit. In verse 45, good fruit. And in verse 46 of Luke 6, this is the kicker. He commands us to do what he commands. Verse 47 commands us to listen to his words and act upon them. So you get the, you get the hint. And that's a small sampling, folks, of how our Christ lived and what he taught. And it is a very, very clear demonstration of how we can and should imitate him. I challenge you to go through. I've done this before. It's exhausting. Take a section at a time. Don't try to do it all in one sitting, okay? Go through the four Gospels and write down on a piece of paper what Jesus did, how he did it, why he did it, and then ask yourself, how can I incorporate this in my life to imitate my Christ? Now, moving on to verses 18 through 21 of 1 Corinthians 4. Back to 1 Corinthians 4. Talking about imitating Christ, imitating Paul. Paul okay, we touched on these verses last week at the end of the sermon, Paul brings up the arrogance of the Corinthians again, and he says that if the Lord wills, he's going to come to them soon, okay? Well, remember, he sent Timothy in his stead until he could get there. Then in verse 19, Paul says this, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant but their power. That's interesting. He continues on in verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So he mentions this power. Two consecutive verses. And he contrasts that power with words. Words, power. More specifically, He points them to the fact that the kingdom of God doesn't consist of words or persuasive speech. That's pretty much what he meant to begin with. But instead, the kingdom of God consists of power. So what does he mean? Meaning is pretty clear. He already talked about this back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, when he said this. And when I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. But in demonstration of the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul was not a polished speaker. You'd think, oh, well, you know, this guy planted all these churches. He was this big evangelist. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Surely he had the ability to hold the attention of a crowd, and to speak. No, he didn't, and he knew it, and others knew it. Prove it, Mike. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul quotes what others have said about his speech. He says this, he says, For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech is contemptible. It's shabby speech at best. It's pitiable, loathsome, and odious. That's what contemptible means. Those are just a few synonyms. Go look them all up. It's very comical, actually. And Paul's personal presence was unimpressive also. Now, it's been recorded in history... Both Christian history and secular history that Paul was short, fat, and bald. And so you can call me the great Pauline one. I'm going to get a t shirt printed up Pauline one. In all seriousness, not only did others um, think this about Paul's speech, but as I said before, Paul copped it himself. Okay? I think that's beautiful. There's, no, there's nothing that could keep you more humble, you know? Second um, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6, Paul says this, I may be an unskilled, I, no, I may be unskilled as a speaker, but I'm not lacking in knowledge. So that's one thing he had going for him. He was short and fat and bald and he couldn't talk right, but he had knowledge, we'll give him that. Now at this point, some of you might be thinking, um, well, if Paul is an unskilled speaker and if he was short and fat and bald, how in the world did he turn the world upside down with all these converts and all these church plants? Answer, power, not persuasive words. Not words of wisdom. Power of the Holy Spirit and the power on display, that power, it's here. It's in you. You take it with you everywhere you go. And you can share the gospel. And that power permeates, saturates that situation, that conversation. And people get saved. Not because of your words or your appearance, but because the Holy Spirit is in you. Please believe that. Meditate on that. The Holy Spirit is in you. It doesn't matter. These other peripherals do not matter. Gospel proclamation and conversion is 152% possible because of the power of God. Nothing else. That's all Paul's saying here to his audacious Corinthian beloved children. He's saying, look, you know, you, you think you're a bunch of tough guys. You think you're big and bad. Yeah, we'll see when I come. He says this, we'll, we'll see when I come how much power you have in your witness, in your testimony, in your life. And I'm, I, I'll i spoil it for you. They, they lack the true power of the Spirit, which gives birth to new life in Christ, and that is why Paul had to write these letters, and he had to visit them. He had to send Timothy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Paul said, "I don't care about your so-called wisdom, your so-called um, display of, power of words. I, all I care about for the kingdom of God, which doesn't consist in words." But in power is, are you witnessing through the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you living your life and imitating me and imitating Christ by way of the power of the Holy Spirit? Then he says in verse 21, remember, Paul's trying to speak to them as a father. So he says, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness. And that's what a lot of fathers say. It's either this or it's that. You've got two options. Pick one. My dad would say, "Um, do you want to clean your room like your mother asked you to? Or do you want me to get the paddle? I cleaned my room. I only remember my dad using the paddle on me one time. And I was incredibly young. I was probably like, Four years old. And he never had to use it again. Because he used it when I was young enough that I respectfully and reverently feared him after that. And I did what he told me to do. I was a quick learner. But I will confess, when I was selling my oats as a teenager and I challenged him again and again, he didn't use a paddle. He just said, you're in for a week. You're in for two weeks. You're grounded. That worked too, worked very well, didn't need the paddle. My point is simply this. Um, He corrected me as a father would a child because fathers love their children, or at least they should, and it did not fall on deaf ears, and I listened. And that's what Paul is trying to do here. He says, um, I'm sorry, um, when he says, you know, you want me to come with a rod or in gentleness – He means, do you want me to come with a rod, a paddle of correction? Do you want me to correct you? Or do you want me to come and not have to correct you? And in that case, I'll come with a spirit of gentleness. My father showed his love for me by not allowing me to do whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it, and subsequently, I did not grow up to be an ingrate, but I'm sure most of you would agree with me on this. Children that are not disciplined by their parents do not feel loved by their parents, and they do grow up to be ingrates. So, this is what, why Paul is using this father-child paradigm, okay? I'm wrapping up. The Apostle Paul was not an absent parent. He loved his beloved children in Corinth. He wrote them four letters. Some some scholars say three, some say four. Um, He went and he visited them. He was there in Corinth three times, okay? He, as I said before, had skin in the game. He proved that through his actions, And we also need to understand that Paul was not only concerned about the Corinthian church, he was concerned about the big picture, and that's the kingdom of God in general, okay? The kingdom, Paul knew, had already been inaugurated by the resurrection of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit in uh, being a characterization of power and power. Paul knew that that power was there to regenerate hearts and save souls. Uh, We know that God regenerates hearts unto salvation, okay? And the Holy Spirit's power, by the way, um, dunamis is the Greek word. It's where we get our word dynamite, okay? And you know how powerful dynamite is, okay? Big explosion. This is the type of word picture that they were seeing when Paul was telling them about the power of God to save souls in the kingdom. And this is what Paul meant. I'll close with this. Um, When he said, I'll find out what kind of power you have when I come, or I should say, he was in essence saying to them, I'll find out if you have any power when I come or if you're just all hot air, if it's just all words, empty, arrogant words, okay? So we'll leave it there, and we'll pick up next week in the beginning of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Let's pray.